we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we examine it. And thank you for your love, your care for us, and, and just that you give us your word to, to learn. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 6. The temple's been completed. Solomon has started his uh, talk. He was telling the people that the history of the temple, that David was wanting to build it. His father David wanted to build it. I thanked God for giving him the strength to do it uh, and talked about the fact that God had never asked for a, a city or, or a people. So starting at verse 6. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it is in the heart of David, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, for as much as it is in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Notwithstanding, you shall not build a house, but your son, which shall come forth out of your loins, he shall build the house for my name. The Lord, therefore, has performed his word as he has spoken, for I am risen in the room of David, my father, and have am set on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house in the, for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And it is, and in it I have put the ark wherein the covenant of the Lord that he made with his children of, with the children of Israel. So here's Solomon. He's continuing the history lesson. And I think it's quite interesting that almost every time we see people in the scriptures talk, they talk about what God has done for them, all right? Uh, we see over and over, God has delivered us from Egypt. Uh, he, he called Abraham. He made us a great nation. Uh, he delivered us. Here he's reminding people what God has done. And I think this is important for us as Christians to keep in mind what has God done, even in our own lifetime. What has he done in our lifetime so that we can keep remembering his mercy, his grace. And I think this is a, you know, this is the example given to us over and over from scriptures. Remember, all through the scriptures, God says, remember, remember. Why does he tell us to remember? Because we have a tendency to forget. Uh, and we are so short-minded sometimes, you know, we get, we have a few days or weeks of hardship and we go, God, you, where, where is the God who's done all this stuff? Where, God, where is your blessings? And we need to be able to understand that God has a great plan for us, just as he did for Israel, just as he did all these years, just as he has for the other great prophets and, and pre pastors and everything that have done great things in, in life. He's got great things in store for us if we're just patient enough to remember. And remember what he has done so that we'll see what he is going to do. And so many times, individuals in the scriptures would say, you know, uh, Gideon said, well, where, you know, been called to God. He goes, where is the God who did these miracles, you know, in the past? You know, God, you used to do all these things. And have we ever found ourselves thinking that way? God, you used to. You used to do these great things. You used to do these, this, this, that, and the other thing is our trust and our focus on him. Thanking him for the blessings that we do have and also remembering past blessings that he has done for us. And this is why I encourage people, if they're suffering from the problem of remembering what God has done, is doing for them, 
Start writing out on a journal what God has done. And then when you're being attacked by Satan that God doesn't love you, he's not doing anything, you can go back to your little list of things that he's done and start reading and saying, oh, yeah, you gave me this, you gave me this, you gave me this, you did this, you did this, you, you helped here. And remind ourselves of what he has done. Because, like I said, as humans, we are very short-sighted. It's like, what have you done for me lately is a motto that we have out there. And most people look to God that same way. What have you done for me lately, God? It's been, it's been three whole hours since you did anything for me, and I'm, and I'm lost. And that's important for us to understand. God is doing things for us. But when we're in the middle of a trial, it's hard to think back sometimes and say, all these good things have happened. Because we get so focused on the trial and how miserable things seem to be that we forget that God is still in charge. And we put our trust in what we see rather than in what God says. And I think about people like uh, Joseph. You know, went in to be a slave for, for, 70, uh, for 13 years. He was enslaved and in prison. I think that would be hard. Now, if anybody had a reason to say, God, what have you done for me lately? It would have been Joseph. You know, oh, Joseph, your brothers are going to bow down to you. Your, your parents are going to bow down to you. Uh-huh. He's thrown into a dungeon and thrown into prison. Like, I'm never going to see my brothers and my parents again. How, how is it? What did God do? He lied to me. But yet he knew that God did not lie. And he held on to that somehow for all that time when it seemed absolutely impossible for it to come, come to come to be, being. And yet we sometimes, just after a few weeks or months or even a year or two, go, okay, God, nothing ever is good happening to me, and we lose hope. And we need to be able to understand, to remember. Solomon is reminding them, David had it in his heart to build this temple. And then he goes on to say, but the Lord said to him, it's good that it was in your heart, but you're not building this temple. Now in, in Samuel, we had a little more fuller end there because it said, you are a man of blood. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, we don't know whether God was referring to the shedding of Uriah's blood or the extreme amount of blood that he shed in battle. I believe it was Uriah because he had murdered Uriah or arranged to have Uriah murdered. Uh, So I think God said, no, you're not going to do this great thing for me because of that great sin. And David had many sins that he had consequences for in his lifetime. He didn't discipline his kids, and his kids ended up being very rebellious. Uh, He murdered Uriah and took uh, Bathsheba as his wife, and that caused him long-term of consequences and judgment and we always have to remember sin has consequences even when God shows grace and mercy to us there's still consequences David deserved death twice because he committed murder and he committed adultery so he did two capital offenses and God did not say kill him but there were consequences that his son two of his sons rebelled against him to, to cause him problems. Another one murdered an, an, an one of his brothers you know, because his brother raped his sister. All kinds of things happened in that period of time, all because of David's sins and the consequences for them. 
And then he says, verse 9, Notwithstanding, you shall not build the house, but your son which shall come out of your loins, he shall build the house in my name. Now this is quite interesting that this was what God told him because David at this point had many, many sons. He had lots of wives and lots of sons, but it was going to be the next son who was going to be king. And we know that from the previous chapter, David promised Bathsheba that her son would be king. Now, we don't know how that evolved because Bathsheba wasn't his first wife. Solomon wasn't his first son. Uh, There were many older sons than Solomon uh, at this point in time. It appears that even though he got into the relationship incorrectly with Bathsheba, that Bathsheba was a favored wife of his. Even though he had Michal, he had Abigail, he had uh, so many of his other wives that, that he appeared to love you know, when he took them. But he seems to have really loved Bathsheba. Or some people believe that Bathsheba was manipulative enough to get, get her way. It doesn't really matter, but her son was said to be the next king. And he's not even close to the oldest uh, son for David. And so he says, and then in verse 10 he says, The Lord therefore hath perfor- has performed his word that he has spoken, for I am risen up in the room of David my father, and am set up, set on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the for the name of the Lord God of Israel. I want you to note here, he says, the Lord, therefore, has performed, has established. And and I love this, the Lord has. Solomon understood that he was in his position not because David wished it, not because he wished it, that he was the one chosen by God to do this. And we need to really begin to understand this idea of When things happen to us, the Lord has performed the work. Now, we may deserve it because of our sin, and there may be judgments, there may be consequences, but whatever comes our way, God has allowed. And he has a reason for it to, to come around. And this is something we always have to remember. There is a reason for everything that comes our way before God. And this makes it a lot easier to accept what comes our way. Uh, and this is one of the things I try myself to live by is, okay, things seem to be wrong. God, I don't understand why. Why, You've promised that things will work out for good, so I'm just going to trust that they will. And when you come to that point, things get a lot easier. It's easier to go through trials when you're going, God, I may not understand why, but I know that you've promised. This is why it is important to understand God's word and to know his word and trust his word. Uh, Because so often we trust in what we think we see. And what we, you know, and if we're in that boat, if we're we're trusting what we think we see, then when we're uh, Joshua, uh, Joseph, going through 13 years of trial, we're going to give up. Because 13 years is a long time. But he said, God, you, you showed me that my brothers are going to bow down. I don't have a clue how it's going to happen because I'm in prison and, the, you know, and maybe they're going to end up in prison here with me and they're going to bow down to me. But he had no hope for it ever happening. And yet 
he held on to what God had told him. We need to make sure that we hold on to what God tells us. No matter what, hold on to what we are told. When we get saved, God says that we are saved without works. It's by his grace. We hold on to that, whether we feel it or don't feel it. We know that we've confessed our sins. We repented. We asked him into our heart. The Bible tells us that's all it takes to be saved. We hold on to it because that's all we have sometimes. But we are told that God always has a plan and that he has, a, has an activity. We may not understand what it is. We probably won't understand what it is until after the completion of it. So the key to this is, do I believe God's word? And am I going to hold on to his word? Yeah. And this is why one of my favorite verses is, as you all know, Romans 8.28. Because when I go through a hard time, I just grab hold of that verse and say, God, don't understand it. Don't know why. But you have promised that all things work together for good. And that's important. It may not be for my good. It may be for somebody else watching me go through it. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. But in the long run, I get rewarded in heaven when I go before heaven. And my faithfulness then will be rewarded. So no matter what, I get rewarded. But I hold on to that verse. And it's hard sometimes. You know, it's... But that is something that is so real to me that no matter what happens, I hold on to that verse and say, God, you've, you've got this under your control. You know what's going on. You, this is yours. You, you've got a plan for it. And that is important for us. Uh, you know, we can use uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your path. That's basically the same thing as Romans 8, 28 in the long run. God, I'm putting my trust in you. I can't see, I don't understand, but when you direct my paths, it will be good. And there's any number of verses that you can, you can, can look at and grab hold of and say, God, this is what I'm going to hold on to. And, you know, whatever it might be for you, everybody will have a different verse. You talk to people, and a lot of people call it the life verse, the verse that God will give them that shows them how to have life. And I think everybody should have something that God has said, this is your verse, this is special for you. And grab hold of it and, and use it for when you go through hard times, grab hold of that verse that says, God is still in charge. God is planned. Come now, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I love that one too because God says, come and reason. Don't, don't be a dunderhead and say, well, I'm just going to walk blindly into everything. God loves people like myself who likes to think things through and reason through because he is a God of reason. So... We, we look at any verse that you can pick out that you say, God, this is the one that I feel that you've given me to live by. And, say, and that doesn't mean all the others are terrible or not, not valid, but there's got to be one or two verses that are really, really important to you. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know, there hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common unto men, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. If you feel like you're being tempted all the time and you're falling, that will be a verse to grab hold of. There's nothing new under the sun. You have the strength with you in Christ Jesus to be victorious over any sin. So I'm just naming off a number of verses that we have because they're ones that, you know, whatever your verse is, use it.
Use it when trials happen and you're saying, I am going to hold on to the truth and be very strong. Uh, so Samuel said that you have performed your word for I am risen up in, my, uh, in the seed of David, my father. You have set my throne in Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. So Solomon is reiterating that God's promise has been fulfilled. He told David that David's son would build the house. And now he says, here I am. I have built the house for the Lord. And then he says, and I have put the ark, and I have put the ark wherein is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the children of Israel. In other words, the Ten Commandments. And he put the ark in the, into, the, into the temple. So he's reiterating all that he's done and what's going on. Now we're going to start looking at Solomon's great prayer. Now one thing I want you to note as we go through this prayer is there are a lot of places where he says, when Israel sins. <laughs> All right? Uh, it's not if they sin, when they sin. And I think this is very important as we look at this scripture because so many people, and I, I hear it so many times, if I sin, if I fail, well, the answer is not if. We are hu all human beings. There's not a one of us that is perfect. We will all fall short of God's desires for us. Now, sometimes we'll fall greatly short. Sometimes we barely fall short. But we will all fall short. All right? Uh, and so we want to we follow up on this. So, And verse 12. And he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long, five cubits broad, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court. And upon it he stood and knelt down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in, in the heaven or in the earth that keeps covenant and shows mercy unto your servants that walk before you with all, with all their hearts. You which have kept your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him and spoke with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your, own, with your hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, that, that which you have promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in your in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel yet so that your children take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me now therefore O Lord God of Israel let your word be verified which you have spoken unto your servant David but will God in ever in ever very deed dwell with men on the earth behold heaven and earth are of the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord, my God, to hearken unto the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you, that your eyes may open upon this, be open upon this house day and night upon the place wherein you have said that you would put your name there to hearken unto the prayer which your 
servant prays toward this place. Hearken therefore unto the supplication of your servant and of their of your people Israel, which they shall make toward this place, hear you from your dwelling place, even from heaven, and when you hear, forgive. Okay. So here is the prayer that he starts making. Uh, as he goes into this, his first thing is, is it gives a place where he prays. He made a scaffolding made out of brass. This scaffolding was five cubits long, about seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and about four and a half feet up in the air. So he's above everybody's heads, basically, when he's on this scaffolding. Uh, because at that point they weren't all that <laughs> aren't that tall, but you know, so he's right at head level for most of them, and he climbs up on this, and he gets up on the scaffolding and he goes down to his knees before God, and it says he spreads out his hands to praise God, maybe lifted up. It doesn't necessarily say lifted up, but he spreads out his hands before God <laughs> to to worship before God. And he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven nor in the earth which keeps covenant and shows mercy unto your servants that walk before you with all their hearts. So I love this. God, there is no God like you. Do we really recognize that? In America, we don't have so much problem with it in one sense because we really have been raised in a monotheistic world. Now, in recent days... There are more and more gods out there. You know, when you start talking to somebody about God, you now have to define who God is. Before, because they'll all tell you, well, I love God. Uh, what God are you talking about? Well, we're talking about the same God that you're talking about. Well, let's tell me about your God. <laughs> the sad thing is, even many Christians don't worship God. They worship their own version of God. And you'll hear things, well, well I don't know about your God, but my God is a God of love. Well, my God is love too, but he's also holy, just, and merciful and has a points where he gets angry with people for their disobedience. The God of the Bible is who we worship, not our own image of God. And, our definition, huh? our definition is completely different. Well, the, the key on that is how do we look at God? What are we looking at for him? Uh, because it is easy for us to start taking bits and pieces of God and say, well, I like this part. And this is what people do. They look at the scriptures and say, well, I like this scripture, so I want to grab hold of it. The promise that God says everything's going to be good. Well, God says that, you know, he came to call, you know, Jesus said, you know, I came to bring division amongst family. Well, I don't like that verse. Get rid of that verse because I don't, I don't like that, so I'm not going to concentrate on it. And we tend to do this frequently. And we need to be careful that we don't get a wrong picture of God. This is one of the reasons I encourage us to read through the Bible each year so that I get the, I and you get the entire picture of God from beginning to end. All the aspects of him. Why I try to go through verse by verse in the Bible and, and pick up all the different aspects of God rather than whatever I find is my favorites. And, you know, if you sit under a pastor who's doing topical studies long enough, you'll find out what they like and, and what they don't like. And they'll just be picking the things that they like over, over a period of time. And they don't get the complete picture from the Bible. 
And this is, you know, I mentioned this before, and I heard it the other day, and it just irritated me. You know, the guy was advertising his his version of the Bible with his notes and everything, and he goes, and we've made sure all the the words of Jesus are in red. And every time I hear that, it bothers me. I would rather that there was not a red-letter Bible in the world. Because the whole world, word is inspired scripture. Jesus is the word. It's all Jesus speaking. So the red letters in the, in the Gospels are not any more important than the rest of the Bible. The whole Bible is important because it's all spoken by God. All scripture is given by inspiration, which is God-breathed and is valuable to it and is the the words in Genesis the words in in Leviticus the words in in uh, uh, Chronicles and and all these other words any of the prophets are no less valuable than the words that Jesus spoke and we've got to get rid of that mentality I, I hear it every once in a while some sometimes well this is really important because it's written in red well, so why is that more important than the rest of the word of God it's all God's word. I used to think that way thought. People are trained that way. Mm-hmm. It really is the way people are trained. You know, the, these are really important because Jesus said them. But the whole word of God is God's word. And we need to make sure that we understand that it's all his word. Because otherwise we do get into these really strange thought processes that are out there. And have to work on understanding that all of it is God's word. This is a problem when somebody starts thinking that Jesus' words are more important than anything else because then they only want to study the gospel. And if that's true, then all we should study is the gospels. If Jesus' words are more important than the rest of scriptures, then we only have four books to choose from. And any commentary in that we throw out because that's not important. That wasn't what Jesus said. We only want to read, if, it, if that is a true statement, we only want to read the, the stuff that is in red and the rest of the book the rest of the Bible throw away. I don't buy that. It's not where, where we need to be. It's all inspired. It's all God's word. And it's all just as important as anywhere else. And so we need to get into this. I don't know why I'm on that track, but I just, it, you know, every once in a while I hear that and it just bugs me. The red letters. Uh, I would be happy if there were no red letter Bibles out there uh, to make people wonder about that. Uh, But he says, you are a God that keeps his covenants. When God tells us something, we can count on it. And I love that about God. When we read the scriptures and God makes a promise in the the scriptures, we know that it is going to be true and that he is going to keep it. And that he is a God that is. And then it says, you show mercy unto your servants that walk before you with all their hearts. Heart is, in the Old Testament, is the word lab, and it refers to the inner seat of your emotions. So basically, your soul, where your seat of emotions are. Do we truly follow God deep down in our heart? Or is our obedience to God just a bunch of rules you know, that we're, we're doing because we feel we have to. And this is a big difference. If I'm sitting there obeying God because I feel like I have to or else, then my motivation for following him is not correct. I must get to the place where I'm following him 
because deep down, I just want to. I'm not even looking at the blessings of being obedient. I'm just following him because I want to follow him. And the blessings come because I'm following him, but that can't be my motivation for following him. Because if that's my motivation, then I'm not really serving him. I'm trying to use him as a, as a ATM. <laughs> you know, I, I, put the, I put my card in and, and do good things, and out pops the blessing. And that's not the way God is. But I honor him from the depth of my emotions, the depth of my heart, and then he comes in and blesses me because that's what he says he's going to do. And we need to really get to this place where we understand this love of God is from the innermost part of our being, that we serve him, not because of what we can get from him, even though we will get things from him, but because I just want to serve the one that loves me and that I love back in return. We see this every once in a while in a marriage where one of the spouses will deteriorate to a point that need to be taken care of by the other spouse and they're getting nothing back from them at all. Their health is just totally deteriorated and yet they're going to, they love that person so much that they continue to take care of them. And this is the type of love that we need to be showing to God. Now, God's going to always bless us back, but that's not our motivation for serving him. It's just, God, I love you. I want to obey you. And then he blesses us back in return, but that's not our motivation for it. Verse 15 says, You which has kept with your servant David my father that which you have promised him and spoke with, their, with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand is it as it is in this day. So he says, you're the one that kept your promise. You made a promise to David, you've kept it. And, you know, I love this idea. As we look to God, are we literally looking at him and saying, God, I know you're going to keep your promise. I know it. Or are you in doubt of him keeping his promises? One of the things that really amazes me the most is how many people say that they're saved, they're trusting God to keep them for eternity, but they don't trust God to take care of them in this world. Uh, and it's just one of those things that I look at and I'm going, I want to trust him for the, I say I want to trust him for the future, but I can't trust him now. Am I truly trusting him in the future if I can't trust him now? And I have a serious doubt on whether I can. Well, God, I know you can take care of me when I die and I go to heaven, but I don't really think you're going to take care of me on this world. That to me is a illogical statement. Now, if I can't trust him in this world to take care of me here, how can I possibly believe that he's going to take care of me for eternity? Because my actions are speaking louder than, than my beliefs that I quote-unquote have. What we're really saying is, God, I somehow will think I believe in the future, but I don't have enough faith to believe that you can take care of me now. And that's a scary thought, <laughs> that, I, that I have enough faith to say, somehow you'll take care of me in the future, because after I'm dead, I really have no choice in the matter. You're either taking care of me or you're not. But this is where we're at with it. Is our trust fully on God. 
And it's hard sometimes. But this is where the more we get to know God's word, the more we put it into practice, the more faith we'll have to understand that he's in charge of every single day. And the more I trust him every single day, the even greater faith I have that he's going to take care of me in eternity. Because it stops becoming just a faith statement. God, you're taking care of me every day, and I'm seeing you take care of me every day in small ways. And because, just as he said here, you made a promise to David, and now you've kept it. As he keeps his promises, and we start having trust in those kept promises, then we start looking and saying, God, I can't wait to get to heaven and see what you really have in store for us. Our trials are designed to focus us on God and his mercy and his grace. And by focusing on his mercy and grace and how he gets us through the trials, then we get to build a greater patience and love for him because we're starting to see him. And that builds our faith for future blessings because of the things that we've trusted him in this time and age. All of our trials, when we're in the middle of the trials, look like mountains and giants. Then we get to the other side of it and look at it and it goes... That's what I was afraid of. It's kind of like what's going to happen when people at the White Throne Judgment look at Satan and go on. That's the one that, that we made us, the nations tremble and quake. That, that thing standing before, God, you know, before the God of the universe is what made us tremble. And I think he still will be fairly imposing, but from that side of the, the presenting next to God, they're looking at it and going, we, fear, we feared that. Now, and this is the whole thing for every one of our trials. When we're in the midst of the trials, especially when we don't walk by faith, this trial looks like a mountain. We get to the other side of the trial, and we look back on it and say, oh, was, that was all I was worried about? That little, that little problem <laughs> that God got me through, and here I am on the other side, grown up a little more, bigger, stronger, and now that trial is nothing. And like I tell everybody, don't look at your day-to-day to see if you're growing. Look back and say, well, I didn't respond this way two years ago. I would have taken their head off for, for that activity. Then, you're, then you know you're growing. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things I, I look at people, and there's certain people I just know that they're growing. They're, they're, you're watching God work in them. You're seeing the, the growth. And it's like, thank you, God. Because ultimately, what makes the pastor the happiest is watch people grow that they're a good pastor now they really don't know what they're missing and we can't explain it to them it's not until you get saved and start seeing what it is that you were missing that you really start to understand it and this is the thing that's very true before I was saved I knew I was missing something but I didn't know what I was missing until I got saved and then the more I get into God's word, the more I realize how important and vital he is to my everyday life. And this is where it really comes down to. The word of God doesn't mean anything to you till you're saved. And all of a sudden, then the Holy Spirit's in you, making it become alive to you and becoming real to you. And you start really devouring his word and growing through that devouring of his word. And getting your whole view of life changed. Now you're focused on a God who created everything, who has a rule of everything, who is the one who's sovereign and in charge of everything. Before that, it's all, look how bad world, this world is treating me. There's no, there's no direction on it. Every, you know, the, 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 
the country is, is conspiring, you know, the life is conspiring against me. And you'll hear things like things come in, bad things come in threes, or what more can happen. Uh, you know, all these different people when they're living in a defeated life. Rather than, okay, God, I don't understand what it is, but I know you've got a plan. And now I can walk through these hardships with a joy in one side, a deep inviting joy. Not that I'm enjoying what's happening, but it's that God is still in control. And at the very ultimate end, I will be blessed in heaven. Even if I felt no blessing on this world, I will be blessed and rewarded in heaven for going through all the trials. And even then, if I start really looking at my life, I see the little things that God is doing for me on a daily basis. You know, uh, just simple things. I know that I have got so much blessings from God that I can't even imagine sometimes. You know, I have always had a roof over my head. I have always had a job. Maybe not the best job in the world, maybe not the best house in the world, but I've always had a house. I've always had the roof. I've always had the utilities. There's been food on the table. Sometimes it's just beans and rice <laughs> and a few, few different things, but there's always been food on the table. God has given me great blessings. I've also had great trials <laughs> that God has, God has sent my way. But to know that he is in control is a great blessing in the long run. And then as he goes on, it says, verse 16, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you had promised him, saying, You shall not fail you, a man in, your, in my sight, to sit on the throne of Israel. Yet so the children, your children shall take heed of their way to walk in my law, as you have walked before me. So David's, the promise to David was, You will always have a king on the throne. Solomon now is saying, God, you've been faithful up to this point. We're looking forward to your faithfulness to continue. And Solomon's kind of walking a fine line here because he's saying basically, God, I'm looking forward to having a son take, take over your, the throne from me and keep my, my descendants on the throne. But he's phrasing it toward David. All right, that David said, you know, you made this promise to David, keep, keep your promise to David. And so here we have this whole thing that he says, he's reminding God, God, you made a promise that David's children will always be on the throne. And we have a direct line from David to the last king of Israel before the captivity in Babylon. Then we have the list of the king's sons from that point on, even though they didn't have another king after that, up until the point of Jesus. And Jesus, being the son of Jesse, of David and Jesse, is the king. And because he has not, he was raised from the dead and has not died again, he is still king. And David's line sitting on the throne. So David's promise has been fulfilled. Even though Solomon doesn't see it at this point, we know it because we know the, the history that goes into it. All the, way to the, all the way through to Jesus, we have a line of David. And Jesus is the final line of David that never dies, that will sit on the throne for eternity. So always have a son on the throne. And Solomon doesn't recognize. Right now, Solomon's speaking faith. 
You have promised. The southern kingdom always has a ruler of the line of David sitting on it. Except one time when a wicked queen tried to wipe out the family line and, and one child was saved, saved from her. And when he was seven years old, they put him in, 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 in power. And we'll get to her later, her, that person later on. And she was the only time, but yet the king was alive. The king was alive and being protected. He just wasn't sitting on the throne. But he was still alive and he was protected, waiting to take that throne. So here we have all of this. He's saying, keep your, you know, keep your promise. And then he says, your children take heed to walk by in your law as you have walked before me. So it's in other words, it goes, David, you have obeyed. Now, it's kind of interesting when God says, David, you have obeyed me. Not always. You know, when David commits murder, <laughs> adultery, adultery uh, really isn't the best father with his kids, and God says, you have obeyed me. <laughs> really speaks to the idea that when we repent, God forgives. And when God forgives, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he forgets our sins. We need to really grab hold of this kind of a statement. Because one of the hardest things for people to do is accept the forgiveness of God and forgive themselves when they do something wrong. We need to really, truly understand how much God loves and how truly forgiving he is with his forgiveness. Because we tend to not forgive. And people go, well, you can't forget. Well, we've had the big banner on this, but it's real easy to forget something. Just quit rehearsing it. Now, and if you don't really think about this, we'll ask you a simple question. What did you eat for dinner four weeks ago? <laughs> unless, unless four weeks ago was a really special <laughs> dinner for you, there is no way that you remember what you ate for dinner four weeks ago. Why don't you remember what you ate for dinner four weeks ago? Because you don't think about it. It's not important enough for you to think about. So what does that say when it's time to forgive? Quit rehearsing the incident in your mind. And it won't take too long for you to forget what it is that you were, what you were not supposed to remember in the first place. We remember what we rehearse. We forget what we don't put on the forefront of our mind. So when we forgive somebody, yes, I understand. It's somewhere in your, stuck in your brain, and it, it's never totally 100% forgotten. But if I'm not rehearsing it over and over and over again, it will be, for all practical purposes, forgotten. Now, God actually, by divine fiat, says, I've got a place in this universe that I dump everything I want to forget. Because he doesn't, he knows all things. But he, by his command, says, if I forgive it, it's gone. That's kind of a bizarre thought. What it means is he doesn't think about it anymore. He removes it as far as the east is in the west. He buries it in the deepest sea. And he says, I no longer remember it. The God who knows all things 
purposely forgets our sins when, when, when he forgives them. That's hard to even comprehend. But by what he says in the scriptures, he does it. He, by divine fiat or command, he says, I forget it. And he puts it someplace where he's not going to remember it under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he cannot go underneath the blood of Jesus Christ because he's put our sin underneath the blood of Christ. This is the beauty of true forgiveness. We need to learn to be forgiving of ourselves and others. Many people find it easier to forgive others than to forgive themselves. Because we know our motivation. We know that we did it on purpose or we were doing it for whatever reason. So a lot of times we have trouble forgiving ourselves. And we need to be able to understand. And it is, to me, it is a place where how much idolatry is involved to say God can forgive me but I can't forgive myself the God of the universe can forgive you and you won't forgive yourself you're almost at that point saying I'm greater than God now nobody's going to admit that that's what they're saying but if the God of the universe can forgive you and you're saying I can't forgive myself God I know you can do it but I've got something I can't I just cannot do it even though you can we're trying to basically tell God, I'm, I'm greater than you are. I've got a higher standard than you do, God. 17. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be verified, which you have spoken unto your servant David. Let your word be verified, be made true. You know, this is where faith comes in, when we stand by faith, and then we get to watch God accomplish what he says he's going to do over and over and over again. And the more he fulfills his word, and the more we're looking for that fulfillment of his word, the more faith we're going to get. Because God, I know your word, and I know that you've been answering your words, so and now I'm going to hold on to that, and I get more and more faith, because I know his word. And I watch him do it over and over again. And so we watch for it, for it to be verified. And then it says, verse 18, but will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. <laughs> I, I find that, you know, God, the sky and the, and the universe can't contain you, the heavens. And the heaven of heavens, your own, your own creation where you dwell doesn't contain you. Will you really come and dwell among men? Will you really fill this house? And it's kind of an interesting point. God says that he tabernacles with man. God indwells us when we come to Christ. And that's something that's very hard for us to understand, especially when we look at a verse like this. God Heaven can't hold you. The heavens can't hold you. The heavens of heavens can't hold you. And yet, a mortal body is filled with you. That's an amazing thought. That God will fill us. And we get the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in us. Which means we have all of him dwelling in us. All that he is, all that of his power is in us when we are his children. That's an amazing thought. And this is where Solomon is. God, you know, can you really, really come and dwell in this house? We built you a house to dwell in, but can you really do it? You're so big, you can't, 
you can't, but he says, I expect you to. We expect you to. And it says, verse 19, Have respect, therefore, unto the prayer of your servant and to the, his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry of, uh, and the prayer which your servant prays before you. I love this. God, please hear me. Please hear me. Now, it's very flowery, but he says, Listen to us. Hear. Hear the cry. How many times do we just cry out to God? When we don't know what to say, the good news for us is that the Spirit will pray for us. And he will, when we're just groaning in prayer, we don't know what to say. The Spirit carries our prayer the right way to God, the Father. When we are just out there and we say, God, listen. We get to the end of our rope and God, I can't take anymore. I need your help. And he comes in and just gives us comfort. It's what he did to Job in the long run. Job basically got to the end of the rope and started making his complaints to God, and God stepped in and talked to him and blessed him. Verse 20, that your eyes may open, be open upon this house day and night upon the place wherein you have said that you would put your name there to hearken unto the prayers of your servant prayed toward this place. He says, God, you listen. God, open your eyes. Look upon us. Many people don't want God to look at them because they're living a lifestyle that says, I don't want God to look at me. I don't want God to see what I'm doing. Solomon is saying, God, look at this place that you have put your name on and hearken, listen to the prayers. We need to be living a lifestyle that is so focused on God. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. We are going to sin. There's not a question about it. We are sinners. Our heart is full of iniquity. Paul, Paul in Romans said, you know, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. This is Paul the Apostle saying this. We're not going to be any less. We are going to do the things we don't want to do, and we're going to not do the things we know we should do. Now, hopefully, it gets less and less the more we follow God, but even then, the more we follow God, the more intense our desires are to follow him, and the more intense the sins are that we're, that we're having to face, and we still end up failing him all over the place, but yet we're failing him in different areas as we grow. And here he's saying, hearken to the prayers. Listen to our prayers. Verse 21 says, Hearken therefore unto the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, which they shall make toward this place, hear you from your dwelling place, even from heaven, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon says, The people will pray toward Jerusalem. To this day, the Jewish people still pray toward Jerusalem and the temple. All right? Their synagogues in America are all facing to the east, toward Jerusalem. So that when they pray, when they're worshiping, they're praying toward Israel, uh, Jerusalem. I imagine that in Asia, they're probably all facing to the west, <laughs> so that they will be praying toward Jerusalem. 
this is something that they take very serious. Jerusalem is the seat of God. The temple belongs in Jerusalem, and they're longing for the day for the temple to be rebuilt. And always they prayed toward the temple. When Jesus was talking to the woman in Samaria, they, she had this whole complaint to Jesus about, you know, our people worship on this mountain, and you Jews say that we have to worship on in, in Jerusalem. And what was Jesus' answer? There's coming a day when you will worship in spirit and in truth. It won't matter where, you, where you're praying toward because you've got God and you'll be worshiping him in spirit. And this is where we are to this day. We get to pray to him anytime, any place, and look in any direction we want. <laughs> we don't have to go figure out which way east is and pray toward the east. But we don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and I love this where he says, and you will hear from your dwelling place, from, even from heaven, and when you hear, you will forgive. God is so forgiving to the repentant. If we repent, God hears, and he forgives. And his forgiveness is not, I'm going to forgive you until I remember again. It's not, I'm going to forgive you if you do something. We repent and confess. He forgives. Now, confession is, an, is a powerful word in, in the Greek. It means to say the same thing as. It's homo logeo. Logeo is speak. Homo, same. Speak the same. What does God say about sin? It's not a mistake. It is a sin. It's a choice that you made. So if your confession is, God, I made a mistake, you're not confessing. God, I am sorry. I have totally blown it. I have disrespected your laws and I have disobeyed your laws. Forgive me. As soon as we start making excuses for what we did, we're no longer confessing. And we need to be very careful about that whole mentality. We need to say the same thing God says about it. It is a sin. No excuses, no somebody, no, no somebody made me do it, uh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> the devil doesn't make us do anything. He can tempt us, but he cannot make us do anything. We, we choose to do disobedience, and that's very important for us to understand. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to make better decisions. Help us to follow you in all that we do. Keep and guide us for all that happens. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believer's packet. You can contact us at 
office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.